Welcome to It's Our Money with Ellen Brown, a look behind the curtain of global finance and monetary control with one of the foremost experts in the field. Author of the bestseller Web of Debt and the Public Bank Solution, Ellen Brown's groundbreaking work began the movement to create new American public banks. We'll look at issues surrounding the world of money and the systems and powers that control it, as well as the progress being made on the public banking frontier. The program is underwritten by Public Banking Associates, a national consultancy of experts advising government leaders pursuing creation of their own public banks at publicbankingassociates.com. Hello and welcome to It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. I'm Walt McCree, Ellen's co-host and senior advisor to the Public Banking Institute. Today, we're really very pleased to have a special guest with us. It's Professor Rowan Gray of Willamette University College of Law. Uh, Rowan is a, a leading voice across several sectors of evolving monetary impact and design. He researches and lectures on the legal design and regulation of money systems, money and finance, uh, including digital currencies, uh, both topics that are central to our work uh, in the creation of public banks around the U.S. and the mainstream, uh, and, and of course the world. Now, Rowan is also president of the Modern Monetary Network, MMT, as it's known in the mainstream media, and he has co-taught seminars on fintech and monies uh, with our PBI colleague, Dr. Robert Hockett, uh, with whom you may have heard on this program several times before. Uh, of further interest to our program is his experience and leadership in the world of digital fiat currencies, which we'll be exploring with him today. Uh, finally, and to abbreviate his considerable list of credits, Rowan is co-chair of the newly revitalized Oregon Public Bank Alliance, which is wor working to uh, finally bring about public banks in that state. So there's lots to talk about with Rowan today. We're delighted to have him as a guest, but also as a colleague in this public banking work, and we want to discuss the emerging role and the potential of public banking as he sees it, uh, the nature and prospect for digital currencies and how they might be utilized in public banking settings, uh, the current push for a national public infrastructure bank, and the relevance of an MMT framework for monetary system evolution. That's a lot uh, to cover. So let's begin with uh, Ellen to start off the conversation. Ellen? Rowan, it's great to be talking to you. Um, so I've been listening to some interviews of you. Um, I, we do want to discuss um, modern monetary theory, and I, do, I have a couple of issues with it. <laughs> but uh, people say it's been tried and it failed. What was it? $7 trillion in 2020 that was issued in response to the COVID crisis and uh, you know now we have inflation price inflation and i heard you say on an interview uh it was only half tried the other half the good half wasn't tried the other half is to just issue the money to build things like productive things uh infrastructure and development which would have be the basic american system model going back to alexander hamilton you know, pretty much what was done during the 1930s and 1940s, except that was those were loans, not just money issued directly. So could you start with MMT, what it is, and, you know, how you would see it implemented if ideally? Yeah, sure. Thank you. I mean, I so the first thing is, um, you know, 
modern money theory, modern monetary theory has a lot of different parts, a lot of different components. Some parts of it are, are historical, some parts of it are descriptive, some parts of it are prescriptive, some parts of it have a, a strong consensus amongst MMT scholars, some parts of it have a loose consensus, and then there's some wiggle room. You ask different people, they'll have different takes on certain things. Um, when it comes to fiscal policy and public spending, um, there's a lot of, I think, the descriptive aspects that help us understand what is actually being done when the government spends. So if you look at the 1930s, for example, um, they were still under a gold standard. They were still under, even when they suspended domestic convertibility, they were still under an international gold standard. So at that point, there was still a pretty big distinction between printing paper currency and printing bonds. Because if you print bonds, you aren't promising to have anything redeemable in gold until the bond is due. So it creates a different pressure on your gold reserves to be printing money and printing bonds at that point. Since the 70s, that's no longer been the case. So there is a fundamental distinction between uh, 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 running a deficit today and running a deficit in the 30s when it comes to how you finance it. Today, I would say it doesn't really matter how you finance it because that gold pressure issue doesn't exist. It might have mattered back in the 30s, whether you chose to fund it through issuing treasury bonds or issuing um, dollars, not because one is debt, but because one um, is promising gold convertibility immediately and the other uh, isn't. But when it comes to the spending itself, you know, what MMT is always trying to emphasize is to look at what actually happens with the spending. So rather than saying the problem is we printed money and then now there's inflation, the problem is that we had a huge economic shock and then we didn't actually deal with the causes of price pressure in particular industries. And so from an MMT point of view, it's not that there wasn't a lot of good spending that was done. It's that there was no eye to the inflationary impact. There was no eye to the inflationary risk of anything that was happening at that point. There wasn't a moment when there was a huge economic shutdown where people said, there's going to be a loss of goods and services. This is something we should care about and do something about and provide alternatives. So I think from, from an MMT point of view, when we're doing that spending, you're already worrying about the impact on prices and things, and you're trying to address that at the same time. You're not just going, MMT says you can print whatever you want, you can spend whatever you want, there'll never be a problem. It says, be really careful about what you're doing and think what you're doing. And you can look at the work of Stephanie Kelton and others when the CARES Act and others were going through, and that's what she was saying in live time, that we should be analyzing the inflationary effects and dealing with them. Um, we wrote a big paper talking about the importance of, of, of qualitative and quantitative credit regulation as an alternative to interest rates. So when you do need to cool off particular sectors that are running too hot, have too much demand, to think about how to do that without doing general across the board interest rate changes that can hurt the entire economy in unforeseen ways. Um, a really huge part of MMT's focus, of course, is full employment. And we didn't have anything close to a focus on full employment um, over the last few years. In fact, we worked on a job guarantee resolution with members of the squad, and the Biden administration was pretty unequivocal that they weren't interested in it. So when you looked at that set of spending, people like Pavlina Chernova, MMT economists, were saying we should be having full employment during COVID. We should be hiring people, even if they don't go to work because there's quarantine, that's fine. But we should be hiring people and focusing on, on making sure that there's productive capacity, not simply just putting money in and then wondering where the productive capacity is going to come from. So 
I think the easiest way to tell that what happened wasn't what MMTers were suggesting is because there wasn't a single MMTer who was leading that, who was involved in the drafting of any of those. They certainly looked to MMT for proof that they could actually pass this without having pay-fors and that that wouldn't cause interest rates to rise, that wouldn't cause bond vigilantes to freak out. And I think those things are true. We didn't see any pressure on interest rates. We didn't see bond markets rejecting huge influxes of new government bonds. So on those claims, MMT was correct. But if, if somebody said, hey, is the is the CARES package one being designed by MMT economists and, and inconsistent with what we would do? Absolutely not. And the obvious reason for that is there's no job guarantee. Um, but also, uh, if we were in charge of managing the spending, there's no way in hell we would have been blasé about the inflationary risk because everybody is looking to discredit MMT on exactly that basis. <laughs> it's the first thing we think about every day. So. Yeah. 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 I mean, look, you're always printing the money, right? The only question is when you run a deficit and issue treasury bonds, it scares the public because the kind of money you're printing looks like something that it isn't. It's it's an interest earning dollar bill, but it creates a number on the side of the Fox News building that's called the national debt. And that scares people because when they hear the word debt, they associate it with their own private debt. And so they go, oh, no, $100 million of debt, $100 billion of debt. That must be terrible. Whereas they don't actually think of paper currency itself as debt. So if you said, oh, we're issuing a slightly bigger $100 bill, they go, that seems fine. You're issuing a slightly bigger $100 of debt. They go, oh, no, oh, no. But to your point, I completely agree. I mean, Larry Summers' vision is rooted in the new Keynesian macro consensus that for years said that there was a trade-off between unemployment and inflation. And so when there's high inflation, you have to bring unemployment up um, and that the in their vision, depending on who you speak to, the causal mechanism there is that you raise interest rates that reduces, uh, that increases the cost of investment, that reduces investment, that means businesses hire less, that means there's less workers, and that means existing workers ask for less wages. And so there is a direct sort of attenuated but direct link from Larry Summers' vision to the answer is to make workers poorer, as you said. And MMT would never say that. MMT would never say that the answer is to balance it on the back of, of workers. It would focus on the industrial policy side, on the supply capacity side. And to the extent that there are demand issues, um, I would be quite creative about that. So for example, I've said on the record multiple times, I would love to have a tax that said anybody that earns, you know, has over $5 million in wealth, every time inflation is above 4% for a month, we will just tax 5% of your wealth and we'll just keep doing it. And if we had that in place, the point of that wouldn't be to get revenue. It wouldn't even necessarily be to change the consumption patterns of rich people. It would be to create political pressure that the rich wouldn't want inflation and would have to be creative and supportive in ways to deal with inflation that prevented it coming up in the first place. So there's all kinds of ways you could, you could actually be creative about thinking about inflation, you know, we've got colleagues now, people in the antitrust movement who are talking about price regulation, talking about what rights firms and industry sectors have to change prices and how we could regulate that differently. Um, but yeah, I mean, all of these are good examples of why what happened isn't consistent with, with the kind of MMT approach, because we would say, commit to full employment. And one of the good things about full employment is that you can start creating new productive systems, new production cycles. I'm not saying everybody on a job guarantee kind of minimum wage would be doing really, really mission critical green work, but 
it gives you a huge justification for creating new experimental production systems, things that we would never be able to get a proper official long-term grant for. We could get job guarantee workers to start doing as a proof of concept and then say, hey, this is good. We should do more of that. It becomes the bleeding edge of public sector expansion or experimentation. And if we had that during the crisis, you know, we might have seen huge volunteer groups providing different kinds of support for people who needed it. We might have seen different kinds of solidarity networks emerging, etc. But the message from the government was your job is to stay home. Mm. Mm-hmm. Not to not to get up and help in a crisis. Yeah, and your business is non-essential. Yeah, <laughs> Whatever, and we're not going to help the essential workers either. You know, <laughs> like my 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 partner is a elementary school teacher, and you know the way that they didn't provide any support to those people who were essentially expected to keep working. There's there's all sorts of ways we could have done something there. You know, right. I proposed bills in in Congress to create an emergency responder corps that would go and perform wellness checks on people while making sure they got their emergency relief money. Um, no one was interested in Congress in that. Um, you know. Yeah, and there's so many. I mean, I live in a senior village and people here desperately need help, but there's, there, there's, no, there's no reasonably priced help you can call on. I mean, there are just all sorts of jobs that people could do, even unskilled labor that, that are needed but you need some sort of network or something set up so that so they can find each other yeah Yeah, and and to and to sort of say hey don't worry you definitely have one job we just have to work out which one it is rather than hey if you can't match with anyone here you're doomed to be alone um there's there's a lot of you know pavlina is i think probably the best on this chernova but there's a lot of mmt scholarship on the difference between kind of crude keynesian pump priming and targeted full employment Right. The difference between just saying we're going to throw a wall of money and hope that that will increase demand enough that somehow jobs will trickle out and there'll be enough jobs for everyone versus we're going to we're going to spend money directly on creating jobs. And you can look at the size of some of these packages and say, wow, that's a lot of spending. But when you unpack it, it's tax credits for this business and it's targeted investment here. And when you actually kind of siphon it all out, there isn't a big pot of money just to help people get hired and do things. There's specific pots of money going to specific places, some of which might might increase price pressure in those areas, but there isn't that sort of generalized, okay, we're going to start just doing stuff across the board. And And you expressed a concern that the NIB bond funding uh, bank, bond funded capitalized bank uh, is not the mechanism that you would prefer. I'd like to hear more more about why you think that uh, that doesn't really work as well as something else. Yeah, thanks. A couple of my colleagues, um, Andres Bernal um, uh, and and a few others, wrote a piece back at the start of the whole Green New Deal kind of cycle in 2019 in Business Insider called uh, the Green New Deal is going to be very expensive. Every penny should go on the government's tab. And and they laid out some of these arguments there. and, you know, for the record, I'm, I'm, I'm very supportive of public banking in general. And I'm very supportive of all of the things that people want the National Investment Bank to do. I see the National Investment Bank as a step backwards from good fiscal policy. And the historical examples of using an independent entity and sort of separating these questions of spending and whatever from the, the fiscal process, from the budget, from the legislative process, sort of 
spitting it out into an independent entity. I understand the political motivation and I understand that it can bring certain benefits, but I think the harms outweigh the benefits and the harms are a couple to me. First of all, as Alan mentioned earlier, what you do when you create an independent budgetary entity like that is you cement the idea that there has to be an ongoing cash flow. So you can't really make uh, loans across the board that are intended to be losses. Um, at that point, you're just talking about direct spending. The idea of a loan is at least at some level, it's intended to be paid back. And the history of sovereign wealth funds around the world is that they don't make loans unless they think they're largely going to be paid back. So I am not confident at all that if we set up a national infrastructure bank, it would be providing investments where they were needed rather than providing investments where they were perceived to be profitable or generate adequate returns. And I don't think those two categories are the same. The other part of it is on the financing side, depending on what proposal for an NIA and IB, I know there are different models out there. A lot of them are uh, trying to increase the available financing capacity of the entity by allowing in private capital. Um, and I don't think, I'm not, I'm not sure if that's the, the model that you're talking about. I'm happy to sort of just stipulate that it isn't, but that to me is also very worrying because that lets in the foxes into the hen house and allows them to exert political influence over the direction and governance of the entity and have a much stronger direct financial stake in the entity. So if you're talking about something that ends up looking like a very, very large pension fund, but 50% of the pension fund is government employees and public sector actors or individuals in the country, and the other half is Wall Street capital sitting there, then I think Wall Street is going to have the dominant political influence over that institution. The way it's set up, it's only private in the, for capitalization. In other words, you can trade your privately held bonds for shares, but they're non-voting shares. So the decisions are all made by a committee and um, Bob Hockett, the, your colleague, <laughs> he, he has another, he has a proposal for an entity that would be coordinating all these things and could be working through public banks on the ground across the country, the way the Federal Reserve was supposedly supposed to work with 12 branches, uh, you know, things that didn't happen originally. Anyway, but that's a great example. The Fed, the Fed didn't work that way. And, and the Fed has a bunch of member banks that do have non-voting shares. But I would say that the Fed does consider itself primarily responsible to those banking actors. So I, I, I agree, like you can design it so that they don't have votes, but that doesn't mean that they're not going to have strong political influence. You know, I, I just have a respectful disagreement with my advisor about this. I don't think that those safeguards are going to be anywhere close enough. Uh, and it, it still requires all of the spending to go through a loans-based framework. And I think you don't need to do that at the federal level. So you're suggesting that what should happen is that the treasury should issue the monies, put the money into, yeah. into the NIB. Yeah. But no, no, not into the NIB, uh, just not, put not it NIB, into investment. In, yeah, into, in, into investment, perhaps through some agency that's overseen coordinating the, the yeah. infrastructure development programming and so forth. Yeah. Uh, and, and But as Ellen has pointed out in our current structure, treasury isn't allowed to do that, is it? I mean, money gets issued through the Federal Reserve. No, the treasury issues coins. The Treasury issues has issued greenbacks and can issue greenbacks in the past, but most importantly, the Treasury uh, Treasury securities. I don't. I'm not saying you have to agree with that framework, but if you start from my framework, then Treasury securities are a form of money. Every time the Treasury runs a deficit, 
it is financing that deficit by printing instruments. Those instruments just happen to be called treasury securities rather than treasury like bills or treasury notes or you know, mm-hmm. US notes or whatever else or coins, but they are issuing a safe government guaranteed instrument. That's one of the two issues I have with MMT, that to, whenever the treasury writes checks, it writes checks on its Federal Reserve account and it can just take an overdraft on its account, which is basically a loan from the Fed, but that's not true. It's not allowed to borrow directly from the Fed. It must issue bonds on the open market and the Fed may or may not buy the bonds. It doesn't have to issue bonds. I agree with you that currently it can't run an overdraft. Historically, it could. They got rid of that overdraft in the 1980s, but it can issue coins and it does not need to issue coins on the open market. It can issue coins to anyone it wants. Yeah, I, you know, I actually... <laughs> I know, I remember I remember reading it in your Web of Debt book in the 90s about the coin thing, but that that's legally as valid right now as issuing bonds for the Treasury. Yeah, well, I'm obviously in favor of that. I mean, I do think that's a great idea. It's totally what we should do. But the problem is we're dealing with a Congress which is freaked out about debt or freaked out about inflation, et cetera. Yeah, but issuing, I mean, issuing the Treasury bonds to refill the... Um, the overdraft account is not a natural feature of the system. It can be just as easy. I mean, I, I, you know, you know this too, but it can be just as easily changed as anything else. So what MMT is saying is we don't have to treat it like every day we get up. And the one constraint is that the treasury has to issue bonds. It doesn't, it doesn't right now under weird, obscure things, but also it could not under a much more direct thing. If we just made a small change, anytime you pass a piece of legislation, I have written it into the bills saying this will be funded directly by the treasury through a special account. And that's it. Every time I write a new piece of spending legislation, I just put that bit in and that's all it takes. There's nothing that requires new legislation to go through the bond issuance process. The bond issuance process exists primarily for making sure bondholders have assets, right? In my opinion, you can do all the interest rate stuff without them. You can do all the maturity duration, long-term curve stuff without them. They're just a confusing instrument. I don't. I don't think that they're necessary yeah, well, under existing law. I mean. But we um, could we could do the same thing with greenbacks, right? I mean, I know you've said this too. You could just get rid of the three hundred dollar million cap. But I think there's an important conceptual point. It's not that the coin has to be used. It's that the coin or the greenbacks prove that that other narrative is false. The other narrative that says that you always have to borrow, you always have to issue an open market. That can't be true. Well, speaking of legislation, you've got an interesting development, the eCash Act, eCash being a digital equivalency uh, for the U.S. dollar. Yeah, so there's obviously a lot of different visions right now about how to digitize the U.S. dollar. There are these sort of very market-friendly ones that say we should really replicate the same two-tier system we have today, where we'll let private banks or private fintechs issue something like a stable coin that most people will use as though it's as good as a dollar. Um, Then you have the kind of more liberal vision, which would be we're going to have bank accounts at the Fed or maybe at the Postal Service and everyone will get one. And I support both of those systems, um, certainly more than I support stablecoins. But those systems essentially treat money as if it's all a ledger. And I think a lot of money in history has been a ledger. Um, And I think there are very good reasons to design money around ledgers, but it isn't the only kind of way that we have money and it isn't the only way that we have public money. And some of my colleagues 
who talk about the history of money will give the impression that it's always all been ledgers. And I don't think that's actually true. If you look at the very earliest work of people like Denise Schman Besserat and Michael Hudson, the before we had ledgers, we had 3D tokens. Um, and throughout history, we've had not only coins and paper currency, but also tally sticks and shells and beads and other things that were physical instruments that you made transactions by handing them over to somebody, not by changing a mark in a ledger. And that had a very different valency, a very different legal property. In fact, the word currency comes from the idea that whoever the current holder of the instrument is the lawful owner. And that was different to an account. If I steal money from a store, run down the street, and then buy a candy bar, then the shop owner who, who sold me the candy bar um, could accept that money in good faith. And then even if the cops, you know, ran down the road and said, hey, that's our, you know, that's that person's money. No, it's not because the money doesn't have any memory. By the time it was handed over in good faith, the current owner has transferred legitimately. And that's very different from an account where the assumption is that you can look at the history and trace it back and all of those kinds of things. So when we are looking at different forms of a public dollar, to me, saying we should have a digital account for everybody is an important but not sufficient part of the vision. And the other part of the vision is having something that works like physical cash, coins and notes. And the reason I think that is important is, first of all, for privacy, if you have a ledger, then whoever manages the ledger can see all of your transactions. And I think that's really dangerous for civil liberties. I think it's dangerous not only for individuals' own sense of their own privacy, you know, try growing up as a closeted gay child in a small town where everybody knows your stuff. And now imagine that for every transaction you ever make in your life. Uh, but it's also important for political opposition. You will not have the ability to have dissidents, to have revolutions, to have uh, opposition movements if the racist governor of Alabama in the 1950s could see every donor that the NAACP had and to harass them like they tried to do. And the Supreme Court said, no, you can't access that donor list, even though you're the one who incorporated the NAACP in Alabama. Technically, it's a state chartered entity and you're saying you have a right to look at their books. Well, the First Amendment says they don't have to show you who their donors are. And I think that's a really important part of the privacy. And then the last part is, is simply about um, the architecture and resiliency. If you have to go through an online ledger, to make a payment, then if there's an environmental disaster or if you lose electricity or if you're in a rural area, you might not be able to do it. Having something that can work offline, can work peer-to-peer -peer directly without a third party in the middle, that has a very different kind of resiliency at an architectural level than an account-based system. So those are all reasons- You have to have some electricity on your device, right? Not you necessarily even. You can, have a, you can have a card that looks like a debit card that has a, a long-term battery in it that move that gets recharged just by shaking it. Wow. And so you don't actually even need a phone or anything like that. It can be extremely low uh, energy. You're right, it requires electricity, but it doesn't require plugging Lighting. in or a battery yeah. or anything like cool. that. <laughs> That's good to know. Yeah, because, I mean, I've written favorable things about the central bank digital currency. It could be used for good things, but it's also very scary. I mean, people are totally freaked out about the whole idea. And the idea that there's a, a central bank network globally that can control us through 
you know, that it could filter down, it could... Um, well. Yeah, there is a consensus among central bankers that's happening internationally long before individual countries' politicians get in on the, on the action. And the central bankers are really trying to define the political space of the possible here. And they don't want privacy. They don't want anonymity because they like the data. They like the control. They like to see themselves as being on side with law enforcement. And so when I speak to the central bankers, they say, oh, no, we're not really interested in the privacy. They say they are. They always say, oh, privacy is very important to us. But when you actually look at what they're proposing, there's no anonymity. There's no ability for you and I to make to transaction directly. So that's where the eCash comes in. We propose that it would be issued by the Treasury for a couple of reasons. One is that it actually works historically. The Treasury has been the entity that issues coins and notes. Even Federal Reserve notes are first created by the Treasury and then sent over to the Fed. So if you look at the historical division of labor, the central bank has been in charge of accounts um, and, and bank payments, and the treasury has been in, in charge of instruments and, and tokens. So having the digital e-cash token be issued by the treasury in parallel to any account CBDC that the Fed was issuing makes sense. But the other part of it is that the Fed is, I would say, pretty ideologically captured. They are mostly coming from a certain central banker, macroeconomist background, and they do not consider themselves progressives whose job it is to protect civil liberties. So even if they may personally like privacy, if they get a call from the head of the NSA saying, you know, or the FBI or FinCEN saying there's no way in hell we're going to allow anonymity, then I don't think that Jay Powell is going to stand up and die on that hill and have a war with the FBI internally within the government. There's just no chance in hell that's happening. But if you do it at Treasury, there's a possibility that you could actually put some political pressure on an elected official who might then have to respond about that. And the Treasury is directly accountable to that. So what would you say are the advantages of e-cash as opposed to physical cash? I know they're trying to get rid of physical cash everywhere, but so, why? Yeah. I mean, I, I, why? So. Because they want to be able to tax everybody or... Well, digital cash, the way that I envisage it, it doesn't leave a trail anywhere. So it's not something that can be taxed from a distance. It's not something but where why you... why not just use paper? And well, so... so the, the reason is because there's transactions that you can't do with paper. Like right now, a large number of people buy things from Amazon, right? You can't use paper currency for that. A large number of people buy things from shops that aren't in their local area. And you can't do that with cash unless you're sending in a, a, an envelope through the mail with cash. You can't buy anything online. So I support cash. I think it's really important. But I think the way to actually do that properly is to not only support physical cash, but also to show that the idea of cash can be transported to new contexts. And in this situation, contexts where you can make digital payments over long distances. So I would love to be able to, you know, buy something in Australia with an account with, with, with cash that I didn't have to take on a plane. Now, that's that's the thing that I think digital cash offers that is different is you can use it in all the same spaces you would use regular digital payments. And you can't do that with physical cash. How does it differ from a debit card? Because that's digital cash virtually. 
I would say it's not cash. I would say that's digital bank money. And a debit card is attached to, is, yeah. yeah, it's a bank account. So yes. what that means is if you want to make a payment with your debit card, you mm. have to connect to the bank. The right. bank has to transfer the funds from your account or mark down your funds. So tell, send it, you know, communication to another bank to mark up an equivalent amount of funds and, and to transfer reserves and all those things. And that is essentially the centralized architecture that, that cash is supposed to be the opposite from. When you transact with a $100 bill with somebody, you don't have to ask anybody. It's just moving the, the information in a secured form. So, but if the treasury is issuing a credit to you for your e-cash card, isn't there a, a record of where it's coming from and the obligation of being able to back up that loan? How does that work? It's not a loan. It's just directly loading money onto the card. So yes, there could be theoretically a record about the initial issuance of the cards, but once those cards are out there, there wouldn't be. So to give an example, imagine a a transit card, like a bus card or a Mm -hmm. metro card in New York, right? Mm -hmm. The, the, the city makes the cards, they issue them. They make the, the, the machines where you can go up to the machine and you can get a card. So Theoretically, they know that they've distributed 50,000 of these little plastic cards to 2,500 terminals around the city in different train stations. But if I walk up to one of those terminals and put in a $20 bill, it will crank out one of these cards and mm-hmm. I just walk away. Yeah. And now I have $20 worth of stored value on the card and it's not linked to my name because I just paid for it with cash. So if you had a system where every post office, every train station kiosk was selling the equivalent of the prepaid debit cards that the postal service sells now, but those prepaid cards are not a Amex card or a Visa card. Those prepaid cards are just a card with the funds loaded on it directly by the treasury. Then you walk out of the post office and that's it. There's no record of that connection anymore. So presumably you'll be able to recharge it. Yes, yeah, yeah, you could go to a machine again, put in twenty dollars, tap the card, it recharges it locally. Doesn't tell anyone else that it's recharged. Yeah, um, yeah. you could recharge it. You know, you could just have burner cards as well that are designed right. to be one use. You know, right. part of the point here is that it, it emphasizes hardware in the sense that if you don't have a ledger, you need to have mm-hmm. something else where the information is stored that cannot be replicated, right? That yeah. cannot be counterfeited. And so coins are a form of secured hardware. Paper currency with the watermark and the signature and the special ink and the special cotton is a form of secured hardware. One of the forms of secured hardware I like the most is the tally stick, which was just a piece of wood where they would put some notches in it and then they would break it in half. And then when they needed to show that it was the original, they would just put the pieces together and say, look, they match perfectly. Um, So there's all sorts of ways that you can secure the hardware, but it makes it different from from a debit card or something where the card is just a pointer to an account entry that someone else is managing. Digital cash is don't ask for permission to pay. Two other things I wanted to talk about. You had mentioned, I heard you on an interview about antitrust and uh, social security and pensions that you would just pay those directly. I, I totally agree with you. I mean, that's the reason we have to have interest on all this stuff is because our pensions, the old people rely on this income that they're not working their money is working for them and if it wasn't we're going to have to have the government pay so i'd be interested in hearing your comments on that yeah so with pensions you know i i 
Australia has a public pension to an extent. We have a superannuation system as well. Um, I, I think it is good to have the yield or the return that we're providing pensioners or even maybe a small amount of savings, right? We could have a savings account that you could set up at the government that had a a guaranteed rate of the inflation rate plus 2% that people could put in up to a small amount, you know, $100,000, $200,000, not enough to become a millionaire, but still enough to have some sort of positive savings. Um, You could do that and that could have absolutely nothing to do with anything on the other side, anything on the other side of the ledger. So to give an example, to go back to the National Investment Bank, National Investment Authority, I... My, my other doctoral advisor, Sally Omarova, who I also respect a lot, has proposed, you know, a system where people could invest into the entity and earn a return on the projects. I don't think that we need to give them any linkage to the projects themselves. If we want to give people a return for parking their money with the government, if we think that's important, we could just do that. We could just give them the return. We don't have to pretend that it's linked to a certain loan, to a certain project, to a certain share. You can say, put your money in a government account and here's the policy interest rate. That's it. It's that's that simple. We don't need to make it any more complicated. For pensioners, for big investors that we want to suck their money out of the economy, if that's the goal of, of the National Investment Authority in part, to serve as a sort of place for patient capital to sit, yeah, park them, at the, park them in an account, give them a yield, but don't, don't connect them to those entities. So yeah, I completely think there's no reason to have a private pension system. All it does is create a big, pool of capital floating out there for others to take over. And, you know, Minsky used to call it money manager capitalism, because when you think of a pension fund, it's not the trillions of dollars of pensioners money that's interesting. It's the guy running the whole thing, taking 3% cut at the top that's interesting. Well, what do you think a sovereign wealth fund's going to look like? You know, what do you think a national investment bank's going to look like? It's going to have people trying to sit on the top of this huge machine of money and steer it in different ways. And I'm very... I'm very weary of, of um, having that thing be managed by a bunch of financiers, which is how I think it'll end up being run, just like the Fed is, um, or at least people who are sympathetic to finances. So, yeah, I do support it on the on the uh, the public pension side. What was the other thing you mentioned first before that? I'm sorry. Uh, antitrust. Oh, yeah. So and there's this new, new brand, I see an antitrust movement, you know, Lena Khan at the FTC. But in the same way as MMT was looking at money, a lot of what they've been looking at is prices and firms. How do firms exist? How are they structured in markets? How do they create prices? How do they adjust prices with each other? How do they create competition about prices? How do they create cooperation about prices? And applying that same sort of very granular institutional critical legal view to those things, a lot of the antitrust people are sort of pointing out that there isn't a lot of supply and demand behind a lot of prices. There's individual actors or a small group of actors making pricing decisions together that a lot of markets are shaped not by competition, but by cooperation and coordination in particular, Um, that if we're creative, we can design structures that allow for a lot of individual small actors having autonomy, but coordinating in ways that can be used to keep prices stable and things without requiring one big mega company behind it all. Yeah. Is there some implicit notion of price controls uh, in what you're saying? What actually happens is all prices are regulated all the time. We're just changing how we regulate them. Um, so, you know, we, we already have laws against certain kinds of price gouging. We already have laws against certain kinds of punitive pricing. We already have laws against certain kinds of interest rate, you know, rates. Um, 
So this isn't a matter of starting with a kind of free market and then imposing controls, but it is a matter of trying to directly say, hey, you know what? Prices don't just do whatever they want. We can direct them in certain ways. And we have for years. I mean, there were centuries where the prices of bread was stabilized, right? We're in the process right now of trying to stabilize the price of oil. There are ways that you can manage prices that, are not simply deferring to markets. Um, and yes, I think we should have a lot more of that. Now, you know, whether we call it price controls, price regulation, market structure, whatever else is, is a more politics than it is substance. But uh, I think we need to go beyond uh, just doing macro spending and then hoping everything will be fine. Because yes, you can have inflation from excessive demand. But what we're seeing now, I think, much more than that, is that you can have inflation from badly designed markets, from concentrated power in markets where people can increase prices in places where we don't have adequate coordination of production, so we have bottlenecks emerge, etc. On the on the National Infrastructure Bank, not um, the loans not getting paid back or not being allocated right or whatever. It, we've done it before with the Reconstruction Finance Corporation and the Public Works Authority or whatever it's called, administration. And they did administer it very well. And the loans got paid back and it actually turned a profit for the government. So I think it... But why, why, are we, why are we wanting to turn a profit? Well, we don't have to. I'm just saying the loans got paid back. and But we I, will. But we will, though. I, I'm, I, I, when you say we don't have to all of the marketing materials gives the impression that that's a good thing. And, well, and that to me is leading profit, Then you can do things that don't pay back. You know, you can do social welfare. You can do, I but mean, if it's the goal, is, if the goal for is to the people, a- for the government. And the, I was reading about where did, how did they, you know, that beautiful artwork that's in the train stations in the post office, who paid for that? I mean, that didn't, didn't, payback but it was the extra it was the profit made on the other things that were so profitable just from fees like train fees and electrical fees etc but this um, is this is why i have a problem with it because what if we want to have a system of trains where there's no fees suddenly we have a conflict of interest where the people on the ground might say hey we want to create a train system that doesn't pay any fees and the people with the money say we're not going to give you the money unless you put fees on so it can pay back so it can be profitable because we need this one to be a profitable venture. And that way we can do other things with the money for other purposes. Whereas if I've there's a big- I've never heard infin- of anyone proposing a train station that was free, you're saying? We, we, have, we, have, free, we have free public transport in Boston right now. We've had it for, <laughs> for two years now since, since COVID and we have it in other countries. I propose it. I think public transport should be free. Yeah. So, but if we can't do that, if the only public goods we're investing in are ones that require a profit, or if it's not every good, if the majority have to run a profit so that we can use those profits to fund the other stuff. But we already know we have a big infinity sign. So why do we need the profits to fund anything? If it's worth funding, we can just fund it with newly created public money. So I, I, that, that to me is still buying into this narrative that somehow this needs to be self-reinforcing with the money. We, we, it's like people on the right who say that the postal service has to run a profit. Uh, why? <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't even have to break even. The whole National Investment Bank could just be a line item on the on the Treasury's balance sheet, mm. and it doesn't have to break even. If there's a good reason to have a revolving loan fund, I'm all for it. 
But I don't think that the way that we should be trying to build the entire infrastructure of the country is through an entity whose first and foremost priority is going to be getting repaid. Well, you know, making a profit is so American, the capitalist pursuit of profit. And then it's become so ingrained in individuals, they see themselves identified with the zeros that are in their that are in their name. And I think what you're suggesting is perhaps inherently a socialist sort of a notion, not that it's a political thing. And I don't have a problem with that whatsoever. Um, well, the military that, does it, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, the military sure does it. Yeah. Yeah, the, the military is not run yeah. on a profit basis, right? So if we said, hey, we're only going to invest in military equipment that is returning a profit, none of it would be funded. Now, obviously, yeah, I'm probably okay with that. That's on the military. probably a good yes. idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, yeah. It's, but, on, but, on the, but on the welfare side, it's not, right? Yes. Public schools are not profitable. If, yeah. it, how many loans would the NIB give to the public schooling system if it's not going to generate a profit? Yeah. So I, I would say I would say if it's worth spending, it's worth spending. It's not worth lending. And I don't need to lend to get more money because I've got the infinity sign in my story. So. Uh, and of course, that doesn't make a bad segue into the public banking discussion because pub, because public banks, of course, are not focused on making the profits that private banks are, are focused on. And although uh, public banks uh, from a banking from the franchise perspective, have got to be profitable uh, to be sustainable. Talk a little bit about the distinction between those two things and what that enables uh, us to consider for what a public bank could do. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, and you know, to put my cards on the table, I support public banking and I have for a long time. And I helped draft the Federal Public Banking Act because I'm trying to support it at the state and local level particularly. Mm-hmm. But I do think that the, the, the metaphor the institutional metaphor of bank is not progressive as a, as a as a starting point. I think public banking can be progressive, but I think the idea of a bank, if we stop and think about what it is, it is a institution for allocating and, and generating credit, credit yeah. on a repayment and profitability basis, basis yeah. that is distinct from a public budget, a public governance process that is allocating on the basis of public good and need. You can try to change the conditions of a bank. You can try to change the governance structure. You can try to change incentives. But fundamentally, a bank is about making money, getting loans that get paid back. If it was a revolving loan fund, it's not a bank. If it's a grant-making institution, it's not a bank. You can make a bank do grants, but that's like saying, yes, I can make a car fly with wings if I put wings on it. Yes, sure. But it's not what a car is. And so when we start from that idea, the federal level, when you need to spend, you have access to the US dollar. So I don't think that you need to do things through a bank institutional form that you can do through other forms. At the state and local level, when you don't have access to a federal dollar, you can try to create complementary currencies, but that is actually quite difficult because most people don't want to have 16 different currencies that they're swapping between when they pay. And because if you're a small town, you might not have the economies of scale, et cetera, to actually have a complementary currency. And more pragmatically, the federal government has no institutional structure to support complementary currencies today, right? That So you're left with a situation where at the state and local level, if you want to be able to exercise any fiscal investment spending space, you're going to need to use other vehicles than the ones that might be the most optimal ones. If you could have a guarantee of fiscal sharing from the federal government, maybe you wouldn't need to use a federal bank, uh, a state bank. You could simply have the federal government use its money power and 
allocate a share of that money power to be exercised with discretion by sub actors. But in the absence of something like that, public banking becomes very important. The other thing that I like about public banking, in addition to the fact that it can essentially resurrect some of the monetary powers of sub-federal actors, um, albeit imperfectly, because it's still framed as a bank and it still has to be profitable and those kinds of things. The other thing is that banks also have a significant role in the payment system. And that means that if you have a bank at the state and local level, you can innovate with payments through it. And if we're talking about things like privacy and anonymity that do not exist anywhere else, then that allows individual cities or states to become havens, to become leaders in the same way as cities and states were sanctuary cities for undocumented people. You could imagine the city of Chicago saying, we're going to issue a local currency. We're going to hire anyone in Chicago that wants to work with that currency. And we're going to accept that currency back from the public bank. And it will be framed as a public bank note issued by the public bank of Chicago. And tell you what, it's as private as that ID that we issued to you. The federal government and ICE can stay the hell out of it. So I do think there are really important functions for public banking, but it's usually in places where better institutional alternatives are not available. Not because I think that the bank as a model, as a metaphor, as an institution is the best way to to actually fund most important public goods. To the extent that we should have banking in general, I'd be totally fine with getting rid of the entire private banking system, replacing it with a network of public banks. But when it comes to, hey, there's an important bridge, or hey, there's a public Mm -hmm. schooling system, or hey, there's a pension system, do you want a bank to be running that? I'd probably say that. There are direct channels that the federal government can send money to state budgets. Like it it doesn't have to go through banks, doesn't have to go through bond markets. Um, There's three words that you could change in a law and suddenly there's a whole new world that could be opened up on that front. So Mm -hmm. I would always focus on the first order priority is to get to a better world so that we're not making compromises under suboptimal conditions, change those conditions first. And, but while we're under them, because we have to walk and chew gum at the same time. Yeah. I, I do think, what you're saying makes sense. I There are two kinds of guarantees, I think, when you're talking about like money's lower in the hierarchy than whatever the highest form of money is in that ecosystem. And, and one is the guarantee that you can convert at par to a higher level money. And I am actually very weary about making that kind of promise on behalf of a state or a city because they don't have the capacity to guarantee it any more than an un, a bank without deposit insurance can always promise that their depositors are going to be made whole. It's actually very dangerous, I think, to have, you know, the, the Bank of North Dakota has done it well in part because they've had a very conservative business model, but that means they've left opportunities to do good things on the table mm-hmm. to keep that conservative business model, right? But I, I would be very weary of having a, a, a state government guarantee the losses of a state public bank with the full faith and credit of that government. Because historically, what's happened with banks that were chartered like that in the 19th century is they were taken advantage of by the rich and powerful in those states. And then when the banks got went under, it was the poor public that was on the hook to pay for it because they were the ones paying taxes and all that other stuff. And the rich guys were not paying taxes and certainly were made all the money off the bank when it was profitable. That happened all through Louisiana, happened all through the South and others. So I would have the bank, you know, exist and and do that, but I would probably focus more on the idea that their credits are tax receivable 
and that that's something you can guarantee. That is something you can promise. You can say, hey, I'm going to issue the equivalent of a tax credit, which I know the constitutionality questions are still there in the background. I actually think that if the case came to it, the court wouldn't strike it down because it would implicate the entire system of tax credits that exist today. Uh-huh. If, if you can't issue anything that is receivable in payment of taxes except gold and silver under Article 1, Section 10, how are you issuing California tax credits? So I actually think a smart court would not try to invalidate the entire system of tax credits. Now, they could say, oh, you're not using that as money. Well, fine. We're going to issue a bank credit that we're not going to use as money, and it's going to sit in an account, and that's going to be an asset, and then we're going to issue some bank deposits. It seems to me, though, that you could issue a community currency, you know, citywide, maybe not statewide because it's unconstitutional, but citywide that's backed by some service such as electricity or, you know, something that that the local government can create. You can certainly be backed by real goods and service. I got no problem with that. But the tax credit thing is not about your taxes. It's about everybody else's taxes. So what I would do is have a secondary system where the minute you want to sell that credit back, there are large institutional buyers on the other side waiting to buy out the tax credits because it's cheaper for them to hold the tax credits than to pay other forms of taxes. So you'd start by going to the big industries in the city and you'd say, okay, what's your tax bill every year? It's this amount. Okay. We will put that amount in a pot that you can buy at 97 cents on the dollar at any point in time. But yes, I agree with you backing by real things. Although I will say uh, my understanding anyway, is that most local governments here are operating under the authority of the state that chartered them. So that if the state doesn't have the constitutional capacity to do it, the local government doesn't either. I've talked so to the people that stream have been a lot of local community currencies that were legal during yep. depressions. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's because article one, section 10 is dead letter, frankly. That if it's between enforcing Article 1, Section 10 and getting rid of the entire system of tax credits and everything else, I think they would they would just get not not really enforce Article 1, Section 10 because it's not possible to do it that way. Um, Uh, To me, banking is what money is. I mean, money, all money is credits and debits like you. um, I want your oranges, but you don't want my apples. So I give you some sort of credit that. that you can spend in the community that the community agrees to accept. And for that, uh, or if you look at the American colonists, they were basically doing MMT and they wound up hyperinflating or devaluing their currencies until Pennsylvania got the idea of issuing the money as a loan. And then the loan was paid back. So basically you're issuing it against the future productivity of the farmer or whoever they didn't they didn't have hyperinflation they didn't they, there were a number of states that that managed those paper currencies completely stable it wasn't it wasn't all devalued until they backed it by productive capacity i, I don't i don't think that's well, pennsylvania answer. did the best and it was because they had a bank that issued the money and lent it and then the money came back so it, it was balanced but ta- taxes taxes reflux taxes reflux money So what they were doing in those other states is they were creating a spending taxing cycle. And if you create the reflux there sufficiently, it works fine. Um, There were places that didn't do it well. There were places that did it better, but it was a tax and spend, not a lend and repay. Um, It's a different model. 
Yeah, but Pennsylvania was lend and repay, and it worked very well. And they yeah, but I don't, I don't think that's the, I don't think that makes that the nature of money. Like what you described there, if you have an apple and I have an orange, and then we extend a credit, the question is, what kind of credit? And what MMT would say is, there's a whole story that comes before that that sets up the unit of account, and the unit of account gets sets up by somebody imposing taxes and then paying. You can only use this instrument to pay it, and so then when the time comes for you to create a credit, you create a credit denominated in the same unit of account as that tax receivability token. And, and you can create those credits and they exist, but it's that tax token that starts off the whole system. And that thing doesn't work on, on, on a banking logic. It works on, a, on an issue and destroy logic. Um, in the original money system of, this, of the Sumerian cuneiform, you know, in the Sumerian cuneiform writings was a credit system. It was a banking system, basically. Like you spent the money first, like you ran up a tab that Michael Hudson writes about that. You ran, you ran up a tab at the bar and when your harvest comes in then you pay off your tab. And if you couldn't pay it this year, you, you could pay some interest and you could pay it next year. Yeah, and then and then, but they also had it in Egypt where you had a tax. There were two. There were different models, different different structures there. I mean, the Sumerian system was very decentralized, and so you did have this coordinated mechanism where the the idea of making loans there was really more about coordinating between different sub agents of the federal government, really more than it was about individuals. Like you would get loans there to the temple, you would get loans to the merchants, you would get loans to the people out in the farms, and the point of the the central authority was to balance those different things with each other. But that model was in part because you didn't have a single sort of centralized administrative apparatus. Once that existed in places like Egypt, you had a, a system where they would issue one kind of instrument and then and tax it back out. I mean, I, I get your point. I'm not trying to say that credit isn't important. I just, I don't think that the starting point is always lending. The starting point is often just spending into circulation and then taxing back out. Which of course is the, uh, the, the primary theme, I think of, of the MMT framework, we spend first. Uh, yeah, and, uh, and you don't have to link the taxes and the spending there, right? The thing about a loan is they're connected. Yeah. I lend you $10, I'm expecting to get 10 back from you. With the tax and spend framework, I can spend a million dollars to this group of people and tax this other group of people. Mm -hmm. And they have to work it out between them that creates a very different dynamic than yeah. the only form of money that gets spent in is bilaterally being repaid by the person it was extended to. Yeah. So it's, it's a more generalized version of the same reflux story. It allows you to abstract the reflux away from the person you're giving it to, to the whole system. Well, this is fascinating, and we've run out of time on this particular edition of this conversation. We'd like to continue it, Rowan, and, and uh, thank you very much for being with us. Very stimulating. Thank you. Thank you yeah. so much for having me. Thanks so much, Rowan. To be continued. Well, that's it for this edition of It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. Our thanks to our guests, our sponsor, Public Banking Associates, and to you for listening. Be sure to check out Ellen's latest writings on the economy and the changing world of money by visiting ellenbrown.com. And for more information on public banking, visit publicbankinginstitute.org. For information on how local and state government leaders can obtain professional insight and counsel about public banks from key national experts, visit publicbankingassociates.com. I'm Walt McCree. See you next time on It's Our Money with Ellen Brown.